With that great seeking, the love of the Lord is displayed in Genesis 42, where we turn this evening. Genesis 42. Just to recap, back in chapter 37, Joseph at 17 years old is sent by father Jacob, also having the name Israel, to visit his sons who are with the sheep at a distance away. Remember, Jacob has 12 sons, and Joseph was sent, and they saw him coming, but they were brothers who hated him. They hated him because their father Jacob favored him. They hated him because Joseph had had those dreams that he shared with them, that he would rule over them. And when they saw him coming, they decided they'd kill him. They threw him in a pit. And then they chose instead to sell him to the Ishmaelites who brought him down to Egypt. Then in Egypt, Joseph ends up in prison. But then in prison, he's brought forward, as we saw in the last chapter, because it's known that he can interpret dreams, it's thought. He says God interprets dreams. And anyway, Joseph interpreted the dreams through God. Uh, Pharaoh's dreams about the, turned out to be, seven years of plenty and then followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph said they ought to store up the grain in the plentiful years. And Pharaoh appointed Joseph to do that. He was made second in command in Egypt. And then we saw at the end of chapter 41 that all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. So Egypt has all the grain, all the world is coming, and now Jacob's brothers are going to come from the land of Canaan, and the Lord is going to seek them in his love. Genesis chapter 42, God's word. When Jacob saw, Father Jacob, when he saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. 
Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you're honest men, Let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us And we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, He saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are, not, we are honest men, we are not spies, we are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men, leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for the famine of your households and be gone, and bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men." And I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. And then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And there ends chapter 42, God's word. Let's ask the Lord for his help. 
Heavenly Father, what a wondrous story you have written. We are intrigued, O Lord, not just by the ins and outs of the story, but by the hand of God, by your purposes. This is the story of redemption. We pray you grant us eyes to see that, and that as you visited these brothers, that you would visit us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, people of God, maybe especially husbands, have you ever been sent to the store for a loaf of bread and come home with something unexpected? These sons of Jacob were sent to the bread store, and they came home with a test that they hadn't expected. I recently discovered in one of our local grocery stores that in the back of the store, not far from a rack of bananas, I think, there's a door, and if you open it, step inside, you're standing inside a tiny, tiny waiting room of a medical laboratory. And so you could pick up a banana in your left hand and walk a few steps and stick out your right arm and get your blood drawn. And I thought that was kind of strange. But what happens here is even stranger. These brothers go to a bread store, and the next thing you know, they're sitting in a physician's office, and their hearts are being examined, and they're leaving with a medical treatment being applied to them that they're not even aware of. Something is going on. And what's going on here is that the Lord of the covenant, the sovereign redeemer, in his love that sticks with his people, is pursuing these wayward hearts to save them, to save the church. Remember, this family is a mess. There was Reuben who had laid with his father's wife, one of his four wives. And then next in line, Simeon and Levi, they had massacred the Shechemite men in their anger and vengeance for what they did to their sister. And then there was Judah, who we saw back in chapter 38, ended up in a sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law. And then there's all the brothers who had plotted together to kill Joseph. And then there's Father Jacob, who had been so through so much with the Lord, had risen to such heights, and yet now seems so far from trusting in the Lord. And this is the church of the Old Testament. This is the family through whom redemption will come. This is the body that will be a light to the world. This is the future of the world. It's a mess. But God's not done with them. And so God has brought a food crisis upon the earth to lead this chosen family to seek the bread of life. He has arranged here a meeting between Joseph and his brothers to restore unity with God and with each other and to lead this family back into the path of righteousness. I'd like to look at this text by looking first at what God does with Joseph and then what he does with Joseph's brothers and then what he does with Father Jacob. Those three things, Joseph, then his brothers, then Father Jacob. First of all, I want you to notice that God gives to Joseph eyes to discern his calling. His calling as an instrument of reconciliation in the life of his brothers. Now, it's interesting the famine has spread over the whole world, and the church is not exempt from the famine, is it? The family of Father Jacob, Israel, is also under the burden of this famine. And so they have a family meeting, as it were, and the patriarch Jacob tells his sons to get down to Egypt. The only 
bread store, the only grocery store that's open, as it were. And so the famine has not discriminated among the peoples of the world, but clearly God has discriminated because he's busy with this one family to do a great work. And he, he leads Father Jacob to make a statement here at the beginning that, that sort of puts everything in perspective because Jacob says he's heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. And that, it turns out, is really the issue, isn't it? That's really the issue of life. In fact, that has been the issue now since Genesis chapter 3. When death came into the world through our father Adam's sin, and spiritual death occurred, and then physical death would occur, and then if God had not intervened, eternal death and hell would occur. And the issue is, how can we live and not die? It's the issue of the world. Everything that happens in this world revolves around that single issue. Day in and day out, we are dealing with death. Well, Jacob's plan is to overcome death through the bread for the body. And he sends his sons. But you notice that that Jacob does not send, verse 4, he does not send Joseph's brother Benjamin. You recall he calls him Joseph's brother because it's these two sons who came from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Remember that? And so Father Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead, as his son suggested to him. And so Benjamin is the only remaining son of the favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin is the replacement for Joseph, and Jacob loves him now with the same favoritism he had put upon Joseph. Now, this whole family suffers from a lack of clear vision. But Joseph, in God's providence, sees with a remarkable clarity what's going on here. The brothers come down to Egypt, and in God's providence, they come right to where Joseph is, and they bow down before him. And they don't recognize Joseph, their brother, but he recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. That's understandable, right? They, they thought their brother was dead or a slave in some field, and here he is. This man, second in command in Egypt, dressed as an Egyptian, speaking through a translator, we would not expect them to recognize their brother. They don't recognize, of course, that the very dreams Joseph had are at this moment being fulfilled. They had said, about 22 years earlier, come let us kill him and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And now at this very moment, they are seeing what has become of his dreams. He's second in command in Egypt and we're bowing down to him. But they don't see any of that. But Joseph recognized his brothers, the text says, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now, this must have been quite a moment, don't you think, for Joseph? The, the last memory he has of his brothers and the, the picture that had been etched into his mind that he has thought about now for 22 years is his brothers grabbing him to throw him in a pit, him crying out, brothers, what, what are you doing? What's going on? No. And then his brothers dragging him out and selling him to the Ishmaelites and he in anguish pleading with them, no, brothers, no. And, and he getting bound up and dragged away, crying out, brothers, brothers. His last image of them was cold, calloused hearts and faces, maybe even smirking or laughing. And yet God has done the impossible. 
God has fulfilled the dreams he gave to Joseph. Here he is, second in command. And yet God did not do that in a quick way. God was not in a hurry. And now it's interesting, isn't it, to watch and read this text and see that Joseph is not in a hurry. He doesn't say, brothers, it's me. No, he doesn't do that. He treats them in a rough way. He accuses them of being spies. And as you read this, you might think at first, oh, I know how this goes. This is called payback. He's going to torture them. He loves to do this to them and make them squirm. Maybe he's going to put them in prison forever in Egypt or kill them. But that's not what it is. Joseph treats them roughly and accuses them of being spies, I think, for two reasons. The first is, is a rather immediate reason. He wants information. He wants to know about the rest of the family, about Father Jacob, about Benjamin, about are they still living and so forth. But then Joseph's purpose goes further because he seems to have eyes now that Christ has given him here to understand that God has put him in this place for a purpose, for the sake of the church. That now it's beginning to come together for Joseph, apparently, that those dreams he had of being ruler in which his brothers would bow down were not so Joseph could be glorified, but that Joseph could be a leader of this family to save them. And to save God's purpose in the world. Joseph recognizes that he's an instrument in God's hand to restore this family, an agent of reconciliation. Because as it stands right now, this this family is alienated from Joseph, to be sure. And these brothers are alienated from each other, right? As tight as the bond of criminals may be, it's not the bond of love and unity. And these sons are alienated from their father because they've lied to him saying that Joseph is dead, and above all, they're alienated from the Lord. So we already saw Judah had begun to go, left the family, went to live among the Canaanites and do Canaanite things, and this family is disintegrating. And they need help. And Joseph here is not seeking revenge. And by the grace of God, he's not going for payback. But Joseph, by the Spirit of Christ, realizes he has a calling and a purpose here to lead his brothers back. And so he puts them to a test, not just to examine their hearts, but that their hearts might be humbled and changed, that their hearts might confess sin and find the Lord and find each other again. And Joseph, in that sense, is pointing ahead to one far greater Our Lord Jesus who will come and it will be said of him that he knows what's in a man. Jesus read hearts. Jesus comprehended deepest needs. Jesus, he went to the core of of the being of man, didn't he? People came to him with lots of kinds of questions and talked about lots of superficial things. And Christ cut to the chase, the real issue, didn't he? Jesus knows hearts. Jesus knows your heart. He knows my heart. And he, he knows that the way in which you might evade or obscure the real issue. But he always comes to it, doesn't he? He comes to restore. You think of Peter, right? Peter and his denial of Jesus, but on the shore, Jesus pressing him and testing, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That Peter might be restored and confess sin before him. And it works in our hearts. He tests us not to see us fall, but to turn us from sin and to strengthen us and to bring us to a true confession. And now at times those tests of our Lord Jesus seem to us to be pretty rough. 
But Christ brings these kinds of difficulties into our lives to lead us to himself. And it's a remarkable thing here that Joseph is able to sacrifice any desire for personal revenge to respond to a heavenly calling, isn't it? Couldn't have been easy, right, for Joseph to say, I care more about God's purpose with this family than I care about my own personal pride and anger and vengeance. No, Joseph apparently has entrusted that all to the Lord. And Christ likewise does not hold our sins against us, but he wants to lead us in the path of righteousness. And the same Christ who was at work in Joseph here is at work in the church today, isn't he? So that amazingly, even when we're wrong, we're by God's grace able to forgive and to, Matthew 18, go to the brother who offended, not to win the argument, but, Matthew 18, to win the brother, to seek reconciliation, to lead the one back to the Lord and away from sin. Wherever we see believers forgiving wrongs and seeking true unity and helping others walk the path of reconciliation, we see the Spirit of Christ at work today. And it's the Spirit of Christ alone who gives us eyes to see our calling. If Joseph did not have true vision about who God is and about the sovereign hand of God, that God has put me in this place for this purpose and this would be pleasing to God, then Joseph would have been bitter, he would have been angry. Who knows what he would have done to his brothers. Whenever we don't don't see the hand of God and we only see ourselves, then we get frustrated, don't we, when we're wrong? We feel like we're victims or we boil over in anger and rage. And our concern is to protect our dignity or to pay someone back for what they did. But when we see the hand of God and we know that this is all in the hand of our Almighty Father. And I'm in this spot and I've been wrong, but you know what? This wasn't out of God's control. The Lord is here. Then we're able to say, what would the Lord have me do? What's the good purpose that God is up to? How, how do I fit into that? What kind of an instrument am I to be? And so we can ask ourselves tonight, am I an instrument of revenge or an instrument of reconciliation? Am I at work to repair the unity of the church or to rescue my pride? And you see, it's the power of the cross. The Savior who is so wronged, so mistreated, so abused, so slandered, so abandoned by his own people, and yet overcame it all to give his life for us. Joseph, by God's grace, sees his calling to be an instrument of reconciliation. But then turn your eyes to the brothers. The brothers here are being tested to awaken their consciences. Our second point tonight. The brothers are tested to awaken their consciences. Joseph's accusations against his brothers gets him, first of all, the information he wants about Father Jacob, about Brother Benjamin. And then Joseph sees he has to work towards a second thing. Because as they describe who they are, they, they say that, you know, we're a, a sons of one man, 12 brothers. And he, they say that there's, the youngest son is with their father back in Canaan, and one son is no more. That's what they say. One son is no more. And Joseph is going to say in verses 15 and 16 that in this manner you're going to be tested. He tells them it's a test. 
You're going to leave. You're not going to leave this place till your youngest brother comes down here. So send one of your brothers, go get him, and then come down here, and we'll see whether there's any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now you see what's at work here. They had told Joseph in verse 11, we are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And Joseph is saying, though they don't grasp it, he's saying, we're going to examine your honesty. We're going to examine your honesty. Are you honest men? The truth of the matter is that although they are all the sons of one man, they have not been honest. They have deceived their father into thinking that Joseph was killed by a wild beast, when in fact Joseph was virtually killed by them. And though they are not political spies, they have been involved in a covert operation, haven't they, of deceit and cover-up. Joseph puts them all in prison for three days. And then he comes to them and he reduces the test. He says he fears God, so, so he says, do this and live. And he says, you can all go home with food for your families, just leave one of your brothers here. He says, do this and live. And they have no idea how profound a statement that is. Do this and live. And live. Father Jacob had said, go down to Egypt, buy food so we may live and not die. Now Joseph says, do this and live. And they don't realize what a commandment of life this is. They think that going home and bringing their brother back means they won't die of starvation or get executed in Egypt. But what's really at stake here is life in the fullest of sense. The path the Lord has taken them on is a path to real and eternal life. And what's amazing here is the brother's response. And they're talking here and they think Joseph doesn't understand them, that he speaks some other language. And so they begin to talk to one another. Verse 21 And they say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. Talking about Joseph here. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, isn't that amazing? How how do you get from this bizarre circumstance? You go down to Egypt to buy some grain. Next thing you know, you're being accused of being spies by the prime minister of the land. And then you get from that to, to thinking back 22 years ago when you tried to kill your brother. How does that work? Well, on the one hand, it's maybe not too difficult to imagine. They, they made a journey to Egypt. I mean, if anyone had said the word Egypt to them over the past 22 years, they would have been shaken, right? Egypt, don't say that word Egypt. Please don't say the word Egypt. The last thing they know about Egypt is seeing Joseph dragged on down in that direction. And now they've been walking that whole direction. They've come that whole way. They've come to Egypt. They must have thought, right? They must have wondered. Their consciences must have been, in some way, pricked by all of this. And yet that doesn't fully explain, does it? How they end up with this confession of guilt already? As they remember these anguished cries of their brothers as they bartered away his life? And then Reuben even goes so far as to say, in verse 22, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. And then as they go home and one of them finds the money, their money for the grain, having been put back in his sack, and they're terrified now. They look like thieves. 
And they say at the end of verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? They're coming to recognize, aren't they, that the hand of the Lord God is at work. They come to recognize in some way already that the all-seeing, all-knowing God is confronting them. They have done a good job deceiving Father Jacob, apparently. They have done a good job keeping the secret. I mean, how do you do that? Ten brothers holding it in. Even when they're frustrated with each other, even when they want to hurt each other, nobody lets it out, what they did to Joseph. They have fooled Jacob, but they have not fooled the Lord. And they're being confronted by the living God who knows everything. Well, Joseph says they can all go but one, and Joseph chooses Simeon. Simeon was the second oldest, and since, remember in the situation back there in chapter 37, Reuben didn't want to hurt Joseph. His plan was when the brothers had went away from the pit, he was going to take Joseph out and save him, but then he wasn't there, and the brothers took Joseph out and sold him, and Reuben was all upset about that. And so since Reuben, the firstborn, was not present in that crime, The next one in charge would have been Simeon. Simeon's detention now in Egypt serves two purposes. First of all, obviously, Simeon is a hostage. He's collateral to make them come back. If they all go home, they're going to say, we're never going back to Egypt again. You know, they got a warrant out for our arrest. We're never going there. That's the first reason he's in detention. But the second reason for Simeon's imprisonment must be that Joseph is replicating the situation of his own enslavement in Egypt. Joseph, he, he takes Simeon before their eyes and binds him. When's the last time they saw one of their brothers bound? Probably brought back a few memories. In fact, everything Joseph does is in a way replicating what they did to him, right? Because they threw him in a pit and were going to kill him. He throws them in prison and they don't know if they're going to die. They change their minds and pull him out of the pit to sell him. He goes back to them and says, no, you don't have to stay. Most of you can all go home. And then he binds Simeon. And all these things in some measure replicate what was done to Joseph. And now the question that's being posed to them as they leave and as they travel home is this. Are we willing to give up another brother? Are we really coming back to this place? For Simeon's sake, when we might be killed, or will we abandon him as we abandoned Joseph? Can we say it one more time to Father? Oh, we think maybe there was an accident again. The Lord is, un- is testing them here to uncover their hearts, but also to change their hearts. And this is rather remarkable, isn't it? Thinking it's been two decades. You know, in some way, if, if Reuben or anybody had brought this up recently, they might have said, would you please forget about it? It's been 20 years. Do we still have to talk about that? Can we get on with life? Yeah, we messed up, whatever. Let's, let's just look forward. But the reality is, is that their sin is an obstacle to the unity of the family, to a relationship of truth and trust between Jacob and his sons, and even more, it stands in the way of their relationship to the Lord and their calling. Do you have any sins in your life that are 22 years old that 
have never been properly dealt with, never been properly confessed. Somebody's pointed out that you can have regrets without confession. And regret by itself does not heal, does it? It's remarkable that the Lord comes for a sin 22 years old. Might have thought the statute of limitations ran out here. But if that scares us and we think, boy, is this my Lord? He's got a long memory. The wonderful comfort here is seeing Joseph. Later on when he reveals himself to his brothers, remember he is going to weep. But already here we, we read in verse 24 that he turns away when he hears them speaking of their guilt. Verse 24, he turned himself away from them and wept. How powerful is the spirit of Christ at work in Joseph that rather than anger and revenge and yeah, right, you should feel bad. He's filled with mercy and love and compassion. And if Christ could make Joseph's heart weep in compassion over his brothers back there, then how much more can't we expect compassion from our Savior himself? Christ longs to see repentance. And this is why, you know, Psalm 32 that Jesus wrote speaks through the mouth of David that, that your hand was heavy upon me when I refused to confess my sin. But then I confessed my sin. I turned to you and you forgave me. And so for this reason, the saints are going to call upon you in a day when you may be found, right? And so there's, there's this summons in Scripture always to turn quickly. It's never too late to turn back. When the Lord comes convicting us, when the Lord comes pressing his finger upon us, confess your sin, turn from your sin, acknowledge your sin. Before his face. We don't have to be afraid to come clean before Jesus. He's a compassionate, merciful Savior who gave his life to deliver us. But then thirdly, turn your eyes from Joseph and from the brothers to Father Jacob. To Father Jacob. Father Jacob is summoned to surrender his future. The sons here make it back to their father. In verse 29, they tell them the whole story of what happened in Egypt. And they come, of course, to that most horrific conclusion that they need to take Benjamin back with them to prove that we are not spies. And before Father Jacob responds to that, something happens. They all discover that they all have their money in their sacks. And they're afraid. They're afraid. And they're not afraid with the kind of fear that Jacob confessed earlier, a fear of God, but they're afraid with the kind of fear Adam and Eve had. The fear when they ran from God. The fear of guilt. The fear of dread. And then what's so terribly sad here is that as these ten sons stand in the presence of their father Jacob, a man who was a patriarch, The one who, remember, had to flee from the land of Canaan because Esau wanted to kill him. And as he was about to leave the land at Bethel, the house of God, he had a vision. God met him. And there was that staircase, right? 
And the God, the angels came down to him. God was saying that, that he comes down. And God said, behold, I'm with you. He said to Jacob, I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. For I will not, I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken. This one who had that encounter with God is, has no words of comfort for his sons here. He's utterly hopeless. He doesn't say, dear sons, be strong. The Lord is good. We will trust him in this. Nothing. No. This is the man, Jacob, remember, who wrestled with God in that night when he was coming back from his exile. And he's about to meet Esau, and he stays on the other side of the river, and he has a wrestling match with God. you remember that? And, and he clung to the Lord, and God gave him that name Israel. And yet, what is Jacob's confession now? Verse 36, Jacob father said to them, you have bereaved me? Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. So he blames his, his sons. For Joseph, maybe he does suspect that they aren't wholly innocent. He blames them for Simeon. He blames them for wanting to take Benjamin. And he says all these things are against me, as if he blamed the Lord himself. And he says to them, even worse, verse 38, My son, Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. He's got ten other sons standing there, and he says that my only son left is Benjamin. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Benjamin dies, I can't live. Now this is the man, Father Jacob, to whom God made promises, saying, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And here he is trembling that he's going to lose everything. If Benjamin is taken from him, then life is not worth living. It was this clinging to Joseph that really had started the whole mess, right? He had come to think that about Joseph. I can't live if I lose Joseph. And that favoritism he showed angered the brothers. It was that favoritism for Rachel that brought unrest into his home. Favoritism for Joseph that brought hatred among his brothers. And here Joyce Jacob is, is trying to save his life. You can't have Benjamin. I have to hold on to him. And what does Christ say in his word? He says, if you try to save your life, you will lose your life. But only if you lose your life, for my sake, will you find it. Now, whether or not Joseph anticipated that his test would also test his father's heart, he probably did, but maybe not. In any case, the Lord knew. And now what is God doing to Jacob here? God is saying to Father Jacob, or God is applying to Father Jacob, maybe that's a better way to say it, the same test he applied to Father Abraham, right? Abraham waited long for the one son through whom God would bring all the promises. And when Father Abraham had the one son, who was the embodiment of all the promises. God said, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mountain and sacrifice him. 
And Abraham was able to do that because Abraham reasoned, I will give up the son and God is able to raise him from the dead and God will keep his word. Father Jacob, now will you put your life in the hands of the covenant Lord? You see, God knows that Father Jacob never dealt properly with the loss of Joseph. Father Jacob is still clinging to Jacob's life. Because of that, he can't properly love Benjamin. Because of that, he can't properly love these other ten sons. Because he he does this, he can't properly love the Lord. He loves his own life more than all his sons. He doesn't even actually love Benjamin. Isn't that ironic? I mean, if you come to that point that you say to your child, if you die, I can't live. That's not love for your child. That's actually idolatry. And if you idolize your children, you're not loving them, you're killing them. Hear the voice of the Lord is saying to Jacob, give it all up. Surrender your future, surrender your heart, surrender your fears. It's only on the other side of surrender that you'll find life. And so the squeeze has come to Father Jacob too. That his heart may be tested and sifted and led to the Lord. What an amazing God we have. 22 years old, all these sorrows and sins. And God says, I'm not finished with you yet. There's something to be dealt with to make you the people that you must be for my cause upon the earth, for the salvation of the world. In Joshua, we get a glimpse of the mercies of the Lord Jesus. But in this all, we meet our covenant Lord, don't we? Who doesn't give up on us. His purposes are good. And though at times they seem rough, God is altogether gracious. May we humble our hearts. Lay it all in God's hands. Say, Lord, I have no life in you. Your loving kindness is better than life. That's where we began tonight, right? Psalm 63. Your loving kindness is better than life. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We are a bit unsettled because you are not a safe God. In some ways, you in our eyes are dangerous. You're a powerful God. You're an all-knowing God. But God, you are a good God. You love your people. And our true safety and security is found only in you. Lord, as you test our hearts by the preaching of your word or by our trials this week, we pray that we'll have humble hearts. As you expose what's there, that we may know that you do that in order to draw away the dross and to purify the gold and to make us more like you, our God. Give us the humble hearts to receive you. Give us hope. When Satan invites us to fear your presence, may we run to Jesus. May we run to our Father. May we rejoice that you are a compassionate God, that you seek not to destroy but to do us good, that for Christ's sake you are for us and not against us. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on your church, for continuing the good work you've begun. We give you praise. Amen.